You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello to the herd. For the next two months, Unbiased Science is conducting a listener survey to help us get to know you, your interests, and what you think of the show. Please support the podcast by taking the short questionnaire at surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback will help us improve Unbiased Science and the sponsors that connect with you. Plus, as a way of saying thank you, you will be entered to win a $500 Amazon gift card. Again, that's surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave. I am a scientist. Yeah, I am a scientist. Yeah, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week is a fun episode. We're going to talk about the show, The Last of Us, and we're going to allay some concerns about whether or not the, you know, the whole premise of The Last of Us could actually happen in real life. Before we do that, just a brief recap of last week's episode. That was a fireside chat. Andrea and I talked about our careers um, as scientists in two very different fields, um, our day-to-day lives. We talked about our name, Unbiased Science. We talked about the importance of scientists working in fields um, outside of academia, and a lot more. It was a it was a fun, informal episode. So if you haven't already listened to that, definitely go back and check it out. Also, so excited that this week we have a very special guest joining us, Dr. Neuro. Welcome. We we love Dr. Neuro. Dr. Neuro is a fellow SciComm nerd and an expert in infectious disease. So this is absolutely perfect. So Dr. Neuro has over a decade of experience providing clinical policy and technical leadership related to infectious disease worldwide with the U.S. government. In recent years, he's provided his support to the 2014 Ebola outbreak, HIV and AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, Zika, COVID, and now MPOX. His focus is in bridging clinical evidence to actionable policy that targets high-risk populations and ensuring equitable access for all. During his off time, he spends countless hours fighting misinformation and disinformation and answering questions on social media while encouraging evidence-based decisions for his community. Love all of this. We are, of course, going to tag him in our, you know, where where you can follow him in our show notes. Um, But if you want to check him out on Twitter, his handle is NeuroFourier. On Instagram, he's underscore DR underscore Neuro underscore. And on Twitch, um, which is www.twitch.tv slash dr underscore neuro. Welcome, Dr. Neuro. Thank you. <laughs> That's like one of the most flattering introductions I've gotten. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been a, it's an honor to join you We're guys. <laughs> Thank you. And shout out to Andrea's dad um, yeah. for 
providing us the inspo for this episode. Do you want to share a yeah. little bit, Andrew? I mean, so my dad and I have very similar taste in TV. You know, we we often, you know, watch the same TV shows, not even realizing it. And then we end up texting about it. And we're like, oh, yeah, I just finished that one. So, you know, he and I had both been watching The Last of Us, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners um, have as well. I know, <laughs> spoiler, Jess hasn't. But anyway, so, so the season finale, which I know a lot of you are already familiar with, came out and I was, you know, seeing if he had caught up and he was like, oh, no, I haven't yet. So don't tell me anything. And then after he watched it, he texted me. He was like, "Okay, so like the season finale was really good, but like I kind of think that this is a little suspicious. So I wanted to text an immunologist and see if my suspicions were correct. And I was like, yeah, you're right. And then I saw Dr. Neuro tweeting about the same thing that was coming to my mind. And I was like, all right, we've got to tackle this on a pod because it's going to be fun, but it's also going to be really informative for people. So as uh, Andrea, as, as you just said, I don't watch the show, but I think I'm the only person remaining on earth who hasn't watched the show. So I really need to stop watching my trashy reality TV and start watching this. But I thought, you know, since I can't contribute much to the actual discussion here, let me provide a synopsis. All right. So The Last of Us is an American post-apocalyptic drama television series created by Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann for HBO. It's based on the 2013 video game developed by Naughty Dog. And the series is set in 2023, 20 years into a pandemic caused by a mass fungal infection, which causes its hosts to transform into zombie-like creatures and collapses society. So, So you guys needed a break from our current pandemic yeah no totally okay yeah got it no so very very absolutely yeah very relaxing tv and all super relaxing Mm -hmm. sounds like it (laughs) all right so uh just a little bit more about it so the creators of the last of us have said that they were inspired by a sequence in bbc's planet earth documentary series uh depicting an ant infected with a fungus that hijacks its brain forcing it to climb a tree and dangle above the forest floor there the fungus digests the ant's body from the inside out and unleashes a shower of spores to create more zombies. So when Planet Earth came out in 2006, the zombie ant fungus was believed to be a part of the group Cordyceps, which you guys are going to have to explain what this all means, but genetic studies have since placed it in another insect parasitizing fungus group, Ophiocordyceps, which is a related genera. Am I saying that right, Andrea? You have a note here, Andrea. What is Girl with All the Gifts? Oh, yeah. So so it's funny because, like, obviously this got really popular because of The Last of Us, but there's actually, like, there's a book called The Girl with All the Gifts, which also is based on a mass fungal pandemic that wipes out, you know, humanity and turns everybody into fungus zombies. So it's, you know, it's not the first time that this has happened in kind of pop culture. But, of course, I think with the mass appeal of this show, you know, we love Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey. I mean, the cat is fantastic. Um, you know, obviously it's it's getting a lot more attention. Before we jump in, we should note that there will be spoilers in this episode. So if you haven't watched it, watch it first before listening, or if you're not planning to watch it, then go ahead and listen. Is Pedro Pascal, is that the guy who's in Mandalorian? Yes. 
Yes. Ah, see that I watch. Okay, very cool. <laughs> All right, so guys, help. What are cordyceps? What are Ophia cordyceps? You have to translate this for those of us who have no clue what any of this means, and should we be scared of them? So cordyceps and Ophiocordyceps are basically genera or, or individual genus groups of fungi. So they are real fungus species. There's about 750 total identified species among these two groups, and these are considered what we call parasitic fungi. So specifically within arthropods, so insects and other arthropods, meaning that they're not infecting mammals, they're not infecting birds, they're not infecting reptiles, amphibians, and so on. They're only infecting arthropods, and in some cases they can infect other fungus species. So when we classify them, they're called um, entomopathogenic fungi. So basically they, and entomology is the study of arthropods, so that word basically means that they're pathogens of arthropods. So none parasitize mammals, as I mentioned, none parasitize humans. The Last of Us is based on a specific species, which has gotten a lot of attention thanks to BBC's Planet Earth, which, again, I, I love that show as well. And this particular species is called Ophiocordyceps unilateralis, and it's colloquially called zombie ant fungus, because I'm sure a lot of you have seen these videos on social media, even on Planet Earth, where you have this ant that's kind of climbing, and it's got this little, you know, it looks like this little thing kind of coming out of the top of its head. That's basically a stalk of what we call a fruiting body, which is a structure within a fungus. And that basically, that fruiting body, you know, it bursts and it releases spores and those spores kind of disperse and, and ultimately infect other ants or other arthropods. There's also been videos circulating where there have been beetles, where their insides are basically completely hollowed out and they're just walking around because this fungus is essentially living inside of its brain. And so so yes, this does cause death to whatever organism is infected, but this is unique to insects and arthropod species. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the things that like, um, you know, when I mentioned to people regarding cordyceps as well, is that like, we actually, as humans actually do ingest cordyceps. And in a lot of Eastern Asian cultures, we actually utilize them in a lot of kind of uh, uh, brewing and kind of medicine and things like that. But as you can tell, we haven't gone rabbit or turned into zombies yet. I also have the personal opinion on the segue on the fact that zombies just physiologically don't make any sense. Right. <laughs> uh, it just don't make it. It just don't make sense in terms of a long time standing perspective. Wait, tell us more. Well, I think that when we talk about zombies, right, we always talk about you know, let's 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 put into perspective of a fungal infection in this perspective that let's say if there is such an invasive pathogen that can actually invade, bypass your blood brain barrier, can obviously manipulate like your musculoskeletal structure, completely change your cognition, like completely and be able to like reason and say that like I need to do X, Y, Z to survive. Let's say if that's something like that were to happen, sustainment of that type of infection within a host without that energy is very difficult. And usually in a lot of these post-apocalyptic zombie movies, it's like, okay, here's the initial infection. 30 years later, I'm like, well, what are these people doing in 30 years? They're, they're, they can't, they're, they're not getting sustained what have they been nutrition. Feeding on? Just, yeah. <laughs> what have yeah. they been feeding on? I mean, there's no people to feed on. So we're, what's happening here? So to me, like, it just doesn't make sense. And I'm like, it's not like humans suddenly develop photosynthesis and right. <laughs> uh, can suddenly get the nutrients. So to me, like, it just 
does not make any sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and it's also funny because, like, when we talk about cordyceps and ophiocordyceps, you know, in real life, the way that it spurts is spores kind of spreading into the environment and it, you know, it basically attaching to a new host. And in these cases, it's arthropods. You know, in these movies, it's it's a bite, right? It has to break the skin and introduce the fungus. And somehow it's in the saliva or the, you know, under the nails. And the whole transmission route is a little suspect. But I do enjoy Enjoy the shows. <laughs> when you watch the show, and I, even like I know I talked to a couple of, you know, immunologists and infectious disease folks, and they're just like, we just put our textbooks out the door and we just watch it. And I'm like, that's what you need to yeah, do. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you got to do. Suspend reality and just enjoy it. So how do we know that these fungi species can't infect humans? There's a lot of factors that contribute to that. And and as you know, as Dr. Neuro, I'll let him elaborate a little bit more on the central nervous system component, the blood brain barrier. But the biggest difference is the fact that insects and arthropods only have an innate immune system. So they don't have an adaptive immune system that can actually help contribute to fending off infections and develop that memory immunity that is very critical for more advanced species. We also have to remember that physiological structures in insects are very different from humans. You know, there's musculature. They don't have like the same sort of brain organization that we have. You know, they don't have as many uh, nutrient needs. They don't have true musculature. Like there's a lot of things involved. But the biggest, you know, most obvious difference is that humans have an innate and an adaptive immune system. And these two arms of the immune system work in concert to protect us from most of the microorganisms, that's bacteria, fungi, parasites, um, viruses that we encounter on a regular basis. Very few proportions of microorganisms that we encounter exposed to regularly actually cause disease in humans. Um, I think that's really important to remember. And so the innate system is kind of this inherent pre-existing system. It's it's often viewed as ancestral. So most organisms have some degree of an innate immune system, but it's unchanging. So you have this one size fits all response. The, the innate immune cells recognize foreign substances or foreign invaders, and they have a little bit of ability to produce inflammatory chemicals and some can eat pathogens. So our phagocytes, our professional eating cells, but they don't have the ability to create antibodies or T cell responses or generate more of the complex responses that are more specific to a given pathogen that more complex organisms like humans need in order to protect ourselves. Absolutely. And, you know, on that note, you know, one of the several things I wanted to really kind of add in here is that, you know, when we talk about like spillover events, when, you know, when we have any other, other organism that actually spills over. So, for example, when we talk about avian flu or we talk about um, any other or even COVID, for example, in the case of, you know, we're assuming that it's a zoonotic spillover. A lot of these events actually are very hard to actually happen. It, it's a very low probability of it actually happening. But because of obviously like encroaching human population in a lot of areas, climatological pressures and a lot of these things, we are our probability of these spillover events usually happen much more frequently. So that's just in general in terms of like viral or like kind of like bacteria type of stuff. But when we talk about fungal infections, like especially ones that are so successful already in terms of like infecting um, the invertebrates or in this case, like the ant population. And in this case right here are very, have very specific tropism or geared towards their cells. It, 
there's no real pressure for them to kind of like spread their branches outwards when it's already pretty successful at that point. They don't need to do anything else beyond there. There's no selective pressure beyond there. And, you know, here's the thing is that like, you know, in a lot of, you know, I think one of the main things people tend to, uh, especially in a lot of news cycles recently regarding like fungal infections, you know, I have to remind folks that like we actually are exposed to funguses like on a daily, like um, there's a lot of like like skin fungal infections that we normally come across. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that, for example, a lot of Southwest U.S., that valley fever is an example of uh, something that typically happens. And usually for most people who are, you know, have competent immune systems, it usually doesn't, you're asymptomatic and or you get through a very mild case and you usually go through it and it's not a big deal. And as Jerry has noted, like, you know, again, like your adaptive immune system, like a lot of your T cells, your dendritic cells, a lot of these factors do play a huge component in terms of actually getting rid of most of these fungal pathogens before they really cause havoc. What we're seeing with a lot of these situations here is that they usually infect a lot and cause havoc in immunocompromised hosts or those who just are not able to mount that type of uh, defense mechanism as kind of similar to ants where they just don't have that mechanism in place to do what they need to do. For the brain situation, again, like, you know, aspergillus, for example, I could think of as a perfect example where it can invade, uh, you know, you know, central nervous system or bypass the blood brain barrier. But those are in situations where, again, where it is a, a patient who is absolutely immunocompromised, can't defend against itself. And they're just those glial cells and all those wonderful immune cells that are surrounding your brain just kind of don't do much in this case right there. And you kind of are left defenseless and, and can arise in a lot of complications afterwards. But one of the com- like the complications are things like meningitis and encephalitis, which are inflammations of the covering of the central nervous system or the brain itself. It's not turning someone into a zombie. And I think, you know, Dr. Neuro, you made a great distinction here is, When we do see more severe fungal infections in humans like pneumocystis pneumonia or coccidiomycosis, these are typically amongst individuals who have what we call a primary immunodeficiency, which basically means that their adaptive immune system is shut down. And so if you want to very roughly kind of analogize it, that means that their immune system is functioning more like an insect in that it only has the innate system to protect itself. And so those people are going to be more susceptible to really all sorts of pathogens, not solely just fungal pathogens. There was this wonderful scene in the in The Last of Us at the beginning, which I actually do, like I replay this to all of my friends constantly and they're so sick of it right now. But in the very first scene, there is an epidemiologist that, play, that talks and he, ta- he discusses the whole idea that, you know, um, when we talk about fungal pathogens, that because of climate change that a lot of these fungal pathogens which actually is true they don't survive a lot of the in you know temperatures within the human body like once they enter they pretty much die off uh it just cannot survive but because of the fact that there is climate change there's you know which you know is real and causing a lot of these like you know fungal pathogens to kind of like adapt have these selective pressures to adapt to that heat that is very true that is something that we all have been saying that in an infectious disease world that in not just funguses but viruses and other pathogens that these pressures are making them a lot more you know you're increasing exposure and uh, adaptability in that aspect that right there to me is the scariest scene yeah. oh, <laughs> in the for whole sure, show. For sure. And I think, I think we'll talk about that maybe toward the end um, as well in, in more detail, um, because I think, you know, the climate change and expansion of infectious diseases is, is a very kind of under discussed topic. But you bring up a great point is that, you know, arthropods and humans have very different physiologies, right? Arthropods typically, and you know, 
Lyme disease ticks, yeah, that's that's my background. But um, they typically have a body temperature around 23 Celsius, which is around 73 degrees Fahrenheit, and they're considered what we call ectotherms, meaning that the environment helps to dictate and regulate their body temperature. Humans, in contrast, are endotherms. We we used to call them warm-blooded, but they self-regulate. You know, mammals self-regulate our body temperature, and our temperature is closer to 37 uh, 37 Celsius or or 98.6 Fahrenheit. And as you know, fungal species are really not great at growing or living in that temperature. It's a little bit too warm for them because fungal species are typically what we call mesophiles. And this means that they are microorganisms that like moderate temperatures. And so you have extremes on the opposite ends. You have your thermophiles, which can thrive in high heat environments. And you have your psychrophiles, which can live in very cold environments. But this range that fungal species really thrive in is around... 77 to 86 degrees Fahrenheit. And so humans are just a bit too warm for them. And so they're they're just not a great host. And since these fungal species already have so many options to choose from in the arthropod world, it's just not super likely that they would ever jump over. Could we sort of suspend reality, though, and entertain a scenario um, in which we could... <laughs> you know, we humans could be infected? Like, can yeah, you walk so, us I mean, through that? Typically, if, if humans are infected with a fungal pathogen, you know, you're going to mount an immune response very similar to what you would mount with any sort of invading pathogen, right? Um, Dr. No, maybe you want to quickly walk walk folks through kind of, you know, the innate and adapt- adaptive immune response here. I mean, like, so in a situation right here, you know, your dendritic cells or uh, whatever it might be, when they get exposed to it, right, they're going, you, and dendritic cells are my favorite, by the way. They're kind of. That's what uh, I fo- uh, that's what I know. focused on for many years. <laughs> this is peak nerdy, guys. I have no, if, for those listening who are like, what the heck is happening? I'm right there with you. But okay, go on. No, no, no. So like, you know, when they identify a lot of these, like, you know, especially these pathogens, I'm assuming that again especially when we talk about fungal pathogens you know assuming that there's no you know change in forms or whatever they might be because that's something unique to them is that they can change different forms that can obviously mess up that up um obviously like we probably would see an infection but infection doesn't always correlate directly to disease state right so that's something we would have to think about as to like okay so should a human become infected with that, what would be the disease progression from that? And then in this situation is looking at, in this case, your immune response in general, like how would your immune like system respond to such a novel pathogen and how long does it take to actually mount an effective response for that? So we would also need to look at it from a a healthy host and those who are immunocompromised. And obviously in a situation like that, those who are immunocompromised or have those primary immunodeficiencies probably would be the first ways where we would see significant ways of like uh, issues from that. But for a, a competent individual, that's a very kind of a gray box because we won't know essentially what would the mechanism be for pathogenesis for a human in this situation right here. But I will say that, however, that Again, similar to what we're seeing kind of like avian flu, an infection does not necessarily, we would need to see something where not only is it infecting a human, but does it have a mechanism from human to human transmission? Right, right. And I think on top of that, you know, depending on the fungal pathogen, right, a lot of these fungi can sporulate, meaning they release spores into the air. So 
transmission is, you know, initial transmission is probably going to be breathing it in. It's not going to be a zombie biting you or something like that. But there are some other fungal pathogens that can infect humans, and that's often through skin-to-skin contact. So those would be things like your athlete's foot and your ringworm, which are keratin fungal pathogens. So those are kind of, you know, they're localized, they stay in the skin. But a lot of the other fungal pathogens that are of medical importance are often introduced via a respiratory route. Um, And so in that case, you've got, you know, the mucous membrane response, you're going to have, you know, the innate immune cells that were going to initially recognize these fungal proteins and sugars that are foreign, they're non-human. So they're going to become activated and then they're they're by proxy going to activate your helper T cells, which are going to produce more inflammatory chemicals. They're going to recruit B cells. That's going to activate them to produce your mucosal antibodies, your IgA, but they're also going to produce other classes of antibodies. Some of those may neutralize the fungus. Some of those may help contribute to facilitate that memory response. But again, it's going to be very different depending on what sort of fungus you're dealing with and what the route of entry is as well. And, you know, again, we would have to definitely see like just in general, like what mechanism that let's say the ophiocordyceps would have to adapt to infect a human because that could actually make a dramatic difference in terms of like where we would see a widespread like, uh, you know, you know, in terms of spread, in terms of like where it's like, you know, which domain is it going to be in where like, you know, what country it's going to be in, how it's going to cross, you know, ocean barriers. Like there's a lot of different things that if you think about it much more and more, it just like there's like a lot of barriers to like it from jumping from a massive infection to a global pandemic. So that's a lot to go through. <laughs> All right, Andrea, I don't know who this character is, but Ellie. Yeah. You so, wanted to talk so about Ellie. Ellie. <laughs> so this is, I think, the biggest suspension of reality. And this was what I was talking specifically to my dad about. So in the season finale, so Ellie Spoiler, everybody, shut your cameras off or whatever if you haven't watched. So Ellie is uh, the character. She's got inherent immunity to the cordyceps in the show. And so, you know, they're trying to get her to this research facility so they can study her and they can figure out why she's immune and why, you know, she she was bitten, but she never turned into a zombie. And I love this because the first zombie that I saw in the show, it looked like they had like henna the woods mushrooms growing out of their head. And my initial response was like, oh, those look delicious. And then I was like, oh, wait, no, it's a zo- it's a zombie. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's like legit like mushrooms growing out of the front of their head. But anyway, so, so Ellie is immune. And so they're trying to figure out why she's immune. They want to study her and use her to maybe develop a cure. And so in the season finale, it's revealed that Ellie's mother was pregnant pregnant during the pandemic and she gave birth in this room in this house and as soon as she gave birth she was bitten by one of the fungus zombies but the umbilical cord was still connected and so the show kind of leads the viewers to believe that something in that connection led to why Ellie is immune now to the fungus. Are we talking about passive antibody transfer here, or what are we talking about? Uh, Good question, and there's a couple of, like, theories, um, but I think, you know, the most obvious, I think, topic that came up initially was, yes, passive antibody transfer. So I'm gonna gonna hand it over to Dr. No first, and then then I'll jump in, too. Well, and you know, what's funny about this is that, like, within the scene, another character talks about the fact that there's this is where it gets the suspense gets really like the suspense of reality gets to be funny because you talk about this and you know you think that it might be an antibody response but then in another the scene like afterwards 
Marlene, who's the other character, she says, uh, like, oh, well, we think that it's actually because the cordyceps fungus is, like, excreting, like, some sort of chemical signal in her body and, it, you know, it interferes with, like, an active infection or whatever it might be. And, and, and I'm just sitting here thinking, I'm like, <laughs> right. so which is it? <laughs> I'm confused as to, like, what is the, what is the mechanism here that's caused, what's, what's the immunity mechanism here? Because I'm not getting, I'm getting very mixed messages here. But I, I think in general, the whole scene, um, what just made me laugh was just how quickly, you know, um, we have to assume that, the immunity was passed on from mother to child in that situation. And, you know, like one of the many things I discussed with everyone in, in general is just like, I was like, when you get your vaccination, for example, like one of the first things I tell people like is how long do we tell you in general for most vaccines? Like, does it take to mount a response or in this case, like do anything really? Two weeks. <laughs> two weeks. It's not, it's not, <laughs> not, not 20 seconds or in this case, two seconds. <laughs> it was two seconds. It was two I know. seconds. And, and for me, like, you know, when I saw that, I was like, that's assuming that there was even a response that was mounted, right? Because it was literally a bite. Well, because she was, she was bitten. Yeah. Then she realized the umbilical cord was still connected. Then she cut the umbilical cord. Like, how is the bite on her thigh immediately going and transmitting something through the umbilical cord to, to the, the newborn? It, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen that quickly uh, for sure. And it's just, it, to me, well, also, like, in general, I think this is, like, kind of the limitations of the game and the series is that, yeah. like, there's no consensus as to the, like, actual, like, uh, timing of the infection right some people are right. like they're like oh it's instantaneous and then sometimes they're just like oh i could like you know eat dinner and then come back and <laughs> i'll be infected right. by it's overnight right yeah <laughs> the incubation the, the incubation period varies widely so widely um yeah but you know so so i mean there there's a nugget of truth right because because yes there is vertical transmission of antibody transfer from a mother to a baby or to a developing fetus through the umbilical cord and and the placenta and so you know the 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 Logic is very loosely there, but certainly those transfers, even if the mom was infected and she had an adaptive immune response and produced antibodies that were somehow protective to Ellie, that still takes those that two week period. So, you know, the mom would have been long a zombie and probably dead at that point by the time that Ellie would have received any therapeutic antibodies, even if the umbilical cord was still connected that whole time. Andrea, could we be talking about a microdose of fungi? that Ellie is somehow able to ward off and develop immunity to? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to say kind of what they're envisioning because they talk about like the chemical messengers that the fungus was secreting. But of course, when we're talking about a newborn, they have a very immature immune system. So, you know, if somehow the bite, the fungus got into the bloodstream, it got to the umbilical cord, it, it transferred some fungal spores to Ellie, you know, she wouldn't have a fun really a functional adaptive immune response to develop immunity to that, you know, as a newborn, you know, that's why it's so important for people who are around newborns to have vaccinations to protect newborns from anything they might be exposed to, particularly in the first six months to a year of their life. So, you know, again, like, not sure what they were thinking, but that also would be very implausible. Yeah. And I'll say, you know, I know for folks who are sitting here um, who are Last of Us fans like me, I played the video game and everything. Like, it was a very touching scene they added into that show because I was not in the game. So I, I appreciated the context. I think that, again, it's just one of those things that, uh, you know, 
the three of us and I know a couple of people sat there. And the more we thought about it, the angry we got because we said, like, <laughs> where does the logic come in for this? They could have just uh, maybe winged it a little bit more, but it's okay, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it even took it a step further, right? So, you know, the next thing is there, well, they need to make a cure for her, right? So let's assume that somehow she's immune, suspend reality. She got immune somehow through through mother vertical transmission, who knows? But then it was, okay, well, we need her to make a cure. And it turns out, again, spoilers, everyone, um, they're going to take her brain. They're going to harvest her brain, and that's what they're going to use in order to make a cure. And they talk again about how the cordyceps, you know, it's centralized in the brain, but it spreads throughout the whole body. Um, of course, they're using the primitive ant brain as a model here. We know that human brain and the blood-brain barrier is very different here. But that was kind of the logic of why they needed to essentially sacrifice her in order to develop a cure for the rest of humanity, which, of course, would probably not be how we would actually develop a vaccine or a cure for cordyceps. I, I think that there was just a lot of, like, there was a huge leap into be like, okay, well, we need to cut her brain off. I'm like, whoa, I was like, I was like, yeah. I was like, can we just look at this, you know, actually like her plasma or serum sample? Can we yeah, just let's like, take some blood samples? <laughs> take a, yeah. Like, I was yeah, like, let's take some blood samples. I was like, can I at least know what chemical signals we're talking about here? I was like, I have no <laughs> idea what we're talking about here. I was like, we're just going, we're jumping straight into like, you know, brain surgery here for this poor kid. Totally. So uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it would, and you know, even like in from a, and I'm going to step in from like kind of a vaccine, like production pers- person, but like, even if like they were able to identify the mechanism for that, the me- to produce it would be a whole different challenge, right? Like produce it yeah. and create something that is like stable that you can transport right. across multiple areas because you know that pe- humanity is scattered across all everywhere. Uh, that right. it, it wouldn't be like, yay, okay, we discovered a cure. Next day we're we're done. I'm like, no, this will <laughs> this this will take a very long time to do. Do we have any vaccines for fungal infections? And like, is this a like how would this how would we do this if we were to do this? Yeah. So I mean, so so it's a great question. And you know, it's funny that you brought the the timing of Doctor Neuro because I because I think that one movie that did that justice was the movie Contagion, where it was like this whole trial and tribulation to figure out, you know, trying to develop a cure. And you know, all the people that I talked to were like, oh my god. It was kind of boring. Like it took a really long time, and I'm like, it takes way longer in Sci- real life. Real science is but, really um, boring. We're kind of <laughs> we take miles to do everything. <laughs> I know. So, so yeah. I mean, there are no vaccines against any human fungal pathogens yet, and it's not because we don't necessarily have the technology to develop it. It's just as we've kind of talked about in the big picture of like what are the most important public health initiatives. Like fungal infections are not as high priority as emerging bacterial pathogens and viral pathogens. But of course, with climate change, like that could change in the near future. Um, We know that certain fungal pathogens are increasing in amount of drug resistance, so they're not as receptive to being treated. So, you know, prevention through vaccination could be a route in the future. Just very broadly from a public health perspective, there's about um, in the U.S. about 75,000 hospitalizations um, and nearly 9 million outpatient visits every year attributed to fungal infections and about 7,200 deaths. Um, It is a likely 
likely underestimation because a lot of these fungal infections that do lead to severe morbidity, mortality, are often co-presenting with other medical conditions like primary immunodeficiency and so on and so forth. But, you know, climate change, again, is increasing the spread of more common fungal pathogens. Drug-resistant fungi are growing in prevalence. Um, Same is true for vector-borne illnesses. Shout out to Lyme disease. But also viruses and other bacterial pathogens, food-borne, water-borne, you know, everything is really kind of expanding in, in geographical prevalence. But, you know, when we've talked about vaccine development, basically what you're doing when you have a vaccine is you're tricking the immune response into recognizing this thing as foreign and the immune system is mounting a response. And so typically when we have vaccines, it's either a killed version of the pathogen or it's a component of the pathogen. So mRNA, it's going to make that spike protein. In the case of COVID vaccines, our body's going to recognize that spike protein as foreign and it's going to develop a response against that. For something like a bacterial vaccine, it's often like a sugar component of uh, what we call a polysaccharide component of a bacteria. So it's not even the whole bacteria. It's just a little piece that is a non-human structure that our immune system is going to recognize and it's going to be specific enough. You would take a similar approach with fungus. You don't need a piece of her brain to take a piece of that fungus out. You've got zombie fungus people all over the world. You could just take a piece of fungus from one of those zombie people or even the micelles that are growing across like the cement in all those towns. Like you could just harvest a piece of fungus from that and, you know, isolate a component um, in order to start working on a vaccine candidate. So that I think was like the biggest suspension of reality for me was like, that's not even how you would develop a vaccine candidate. You wouldn't. I mean, and like, and in the real world too, you know, when we talk about like vaccine production as well, you know, and um, it's actually very cool because we actually are starting to kind of broach into the territory of looking at what we call a panfungal vaccine, uh, addressing all different species. Because uh, unlike uh, when we look at, for example, COVID, for example, we, we look at it, we, you know, we target specific, very specific portions of the virus where we know that obviously our immune system can react to. And that's where we essentially get that parts of the mRNA that actually address it. But with fungal infections and everything, one of the biggest challenge, one of the challenges of developing it is that you have so many different species of funguses that are out there that can cause problems. And so one of the things is like figuring out, well, how can we develop a vaccine that's going to address all these different interspecies, right? Um, and so I think that based on like so far what we're looking at in a lot of different areas, and um, I think it was University of Georgia and a couple of other places that actually started developing a panfungal vaccine. That's actually one of the likelier candidates that we'll probably see. But And I just had this discussion with my, one of my colleagues about this is that Having something on paper is one thing, but then having it having a large pharmaceutical group be able to take that up and invest in something like that and then mass produce it is a very different thing in and of itself too. So you know where we would see, I don't know, but I do understand that very much in terms of the United States right now. And I think a lot of you have heard that you know Candida auris has been on the rise, and part of that too, you know, I have to remind folks is that we had a large influx of individuals who were hospitalized during the COVID pandemic. During the COVID pandemic, we also had a lot of folks who were prescribed with corticosteroids and a lot of things that would, you know, put someone at risk for, you know, a lot of other, you know, uh, infections. And you probably have heard of mucormycosis, which, uh, you know, we saw a lot of cases of those uh, for people who were, you know, unfortunately treated with corticosteroids in the wrong way. So, and a lot of different reasons, you know, again, when we look at, uh, you know, from a public health perspective and from an infectious disease perspective, like fungal infections are a emerging threat, very much so. And I, if anything, I would like to, you know, as a kind of a moral to the story really is that like, we don't want it to go from an emerging to like, 
oh God, we need to do something right now, right? Yeah. We, 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 we right. should get these things moving and we should be starting to look at a lot of that. Um, even treatments, I'll tell you right now that the most effective treatment right now does require a patient to come in on a daily basis to get an IV infusion, which is actually not scalable across the thing, right? You can't expect patient, many, a lot of patients to come in like for a whole month to get this infusion. And for a lot of folks, and that's kind of one of the many things that we're, we're worried about is that like, if something from a global perspective happened where everyone got this infection all of a sudden and it's severe, you would not have enough resources to do something like that. And, you know, fungal species are much more complex structurally and physiologically than bacteria, than viruses and things like that. And so that's one of the reasons why they are more challenging to treat and they have more invasive treatment options, because if you look at their cellular architecture, they're not the same as mammalian cells, but they're getting closer in terms of things that are shared. But yes, pan fungal vaccines, I think the the trial that you were, or the study you were referencing, they were looking at um, covered four different species. Uh, pneumocystis, aspergillus, candida, and cryptococcus, which are four of the more impactful human pathogens, you know, and so, but again, early stages, um, you know, they they noted that there was a good immune response, but again, very early stages until we get to a, a vaccine candidate for fungi. Well, and you know, one of the many things too is to see like what type of long-term immunity will we see from something like this, right? Like, would this be something that we would have to prime in a patient for and then boost every few years? What would that look like in a profile from a host, healthy host versus an immunocompromised host? There's a lot of these variables that when we talk about vaccine development and vaccine candidates that we have to really think about in the bigger picture in that perspective. So, so I, I mean, I think my big TLDR is I love the show. Love the show. Super captivating. Love the cast. But of course, this sort of fungal zombie pandemic taking a brain to make a cure, not not realistic in the context of real science and medicine and, and not something that humans need to worry about in the immediate future. Well, and as Dr. Neuro said, probably we don't need to worry too much about zombie stuff in, in general, right? <laughs> I've just told people, you want to pre like zombie proof yourself, just wear a leather jacket. Like, like no, like if you <laughs> just, you cannot bite through that. Like there's, I don't care. Like there's <laughs> There's no way a human who turned into a zombie suddenly developed superhuman. No, like, they do. Super strength. Just, oh. Super strength and super speed. You saw, um, what was the one with Will Smith? They became so strong and so fast. Um, I am legend. They became so fast and so muscular and so strong. It was, yeah. Okay, well, besides that, let's assume that zombies are not, you know, super mutants and suddenly develop, like, tensile strength of like a million and <laughs> you're, you should be fine. <laughs> you watching the two of you like nerd out and get so excited about this has been so entertaining. Uh, Andrea, I feel like this is probably your favorite episode that we've ever done um, <laughs> or one of them. Um, this was awesome. I learned so much from both of you. Dr. Neuro, is there anything else you wanted to, I know you sort of, sh sort of already shared the moral of the story, but any final thoughts before Andrea takes us home? Just that don't take climate change lightly. Uh, it's something that I've actually been very big proponent on is like making sure that when we talk about infectious diseases that we will see more of these outbreaks and we will see more of these pathogens, not just fictional, but I'm talking about real life. Um, and we have to look at a lot of other other causes, which is, you know, climatological pressures and things like that. So it's good to keep that in mind and really put into perspective when you hear a lot of these news of different infectious diseases that are coming out and put into perspective that, you know, they have existed, but now that they are being pressured essentially more to do more and just keep calm and 
really like wait for the experts to weigh in before people start freaking out over it. <laughs> Preach. I feel like that is, yeah. I feel like I feel like every day where we see another like headline, we're like, oh no, this is gonna get taken out of context. But yes, that is the moral, that is the official moral of the story. So thank you so much, Dr. Neuro, for joining us to nerd out about this. I really we I really enjoyed it. I think Jess really enjoyed sure. it. I hope the listeners really enjoy it. And if you want more unbiased science, please consider subscribing to our $5 a month Substack. It's theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. We do try to post extended content there periodically, but the biggest perk is that you're going to get access to our private Facebook group and our monthly Q&As, which are going to be survey-based, and um, we're changing the format a little bit, so, so we hope you enjoy it. Next episode, we are going to be tackling pet allergies and allergenic pets, what's real and what's not. We will continue to provide updates on all of the science and wellness trends, including COVID-19, of course, on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Unbiased SciPod. As you know, we are now recording video for our podcast episodes. So please also subscribe to our YouTube channel. And don't forget to follow Dr. Neuro on Twitter at NeuroFourier and at Instagram at underscore Dr. underscore Neuro underscore. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah. I am a scientist